Welcome to the Jonathan Shuttlesworth podcast. To stay connected, go to revivaltoday.com. And now, here is Evangelist Jonathan. Please give a warm Texas welcome to my father, Evangelist Tiff Shuttlesworth, as he comes to deliver the Word of God. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy to be praised. Come on, one more time. Father, we bless you tonight in the mighty name of Jesus. We bless you tonight in the mighty name of Jesus. As you're seated, turn and tell three people, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Praise his holy name. We are so glad you're here tonight. We really are. Oh my goodness. Brother George, Pastor Sandy, get up here and at least shake my hand. (laughs) So good to see you. How are you? Queen of Houston, I bless you in Jesus' name. We love them. Give them a mighty hand. I feel the anointing of Shipley's. First Shipley's donut I ever had in my life was in Houston. I used to weigh 98 pounds prior to that donut. And then uh, George was so proud of the donuts, he introduced me. Who's the football player with with makes the sausage? Earl Campbell, and and what do they call that again? Kalaches. Oh, dear Jesus. Dear Jesus, may they be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I pray. In Jesus' name. (laughs) I tell you what, if you don't like Kalaches and Shipley Donuts, we're going to have to ask you to leave the building. No, I'm just kidding. But how many of you know Texas is blessed with so many wonderful cultural blessings and we bless the Lord for all of his creativity isn't it amazing how God created people and uh, no two are alike and uh, how I ended up with red hair in my family there's no red hair in my family they go back generations you can't find them red-headed left-handed green eyes I mean on the on the chart of of unexpected, I, I just kind of checked all of the boxes of in, impossible, big, ugly. I just, right on down the line, she rolls. But I am so glad that people in Texas have been so good to me through the years. And uh, I have had a marvelous, marvelous, blessed time being here. This was totally unexpected. And uh, with my schedule, uh, I am... At this stage of life, and I I say this from my heart, at this stage of life, I cherish every moment I can spend with my son and my daughter and their spouses and my grandchildren. And, uh, you know, I hadn't seen my grandchildren in Canada for over two years during COVID. And my grandson had just been born. I mean, you know, when you miss the first two years of your grandson's life, uh, that's makes you mad. 
at the foolishness that keeps you from doing it. But I am so deeply appreciative and want to thank God and, and bless you for allowing me to stand at the sacred desk and to be a part of the launching of this great work. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to get on a plane tonight and uh, fly back uh, to Pittsburgh and uh, I'm going to drive down tomorrow, Lord willing, and see my 91-year-old mother. And uh, the veil between earth and heaven is growing thinner. And my mother uh, is down to about 85 pounds. And uh, she's lived a long, full life. And so I'm, I've been trying to, to make sure I, uh, I get to see her. I was in Alaska for two weeks. I was a little concerned because my father passed away when I was in the Arctic Circle. And uh, I actually found out my father died on social media. I had no phone signal in the Arctic Circle when my father passed away years ago. And there was a village that I had flown into, and many times I'd go to the school, if a village in the Arctic Circle had a, a school, I've been going to the Arctic Circle for almost 30 years. You know, there's over a hundred villages in the Arctic Circle that have no church, no gospel. I was at a village not long ago and found out through my research that no one had been to that village to preach the gospel in 104 years. And when I found that out, uh, I, I began to think, I thought, well, Lord, I'm going to meet people who have never seen a Bible have never heard the name Jesus. And sure enough, when I got there, I asked the question as I was meeting people and the native people there in the village, uh, Yupik people, uh, have you ever seen a Bible? Not one single person had ever seen a Bible that I asked. I asked over and over and over again, have you ever heard of the name Jesus? Never met a single person in that village who had ever heard the name Jesus. I was tuning my guitar. By the way, uh, when I get to come where I'm a little more prepared, uh, I'll be bringing uh, my guitar. And, and uh, we've recorded seven albums in, in Nashville. We've got a brand new album coming out. And I look forward to being able to minister in, in music and, and uh, bring my guitar with me. But you know, when you go to the Arctic Circle and... Uh, fly in a sound system in your guitar. Not too many people are doing concerts in the Arctic Circle. And, but you know, almost the entire village comes out, uh, not necessarily because of the Bible, but because of somebody flying in and to do a concert. And the kids would gather around. I'd go over to the community building uh, where I'd do the outreach and tune my guitar and set up, and they just would stand there in a circle of kids watching every move. And, you know, they hadn't seen uh, white faces before. I remember in that particular village, one of the kids leaned over and, and uh, thought he whispered, but I heard every word. He whispered to the kids. He said, look at his eyes. They're green like a monster. <laughs> and then... Uh, one of the girls looked at my hair, and of course all of the kids in the village have beautiful satin black hair, and the Yupik kids and the various uh, tribes, we oftentimes call them Eskimos, but there's multiple specific tribes that they're proud of. And uh, I'll never forget that girl looking up to me and say, Mister, what happened to your hair? Because she had never seen uh, red hair before. But uh, I said, at my age, we don't care what color it is. We're just happy to have it where I come from. But uh, 
break your heart to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ had never one time been spoken in that village in anybody's life. And in three nights to watch almost 80% of the village give their hearts to Jesus Christ and follow up to see a church planted there. That's been my life for 44 years. I've done my best to preach the gospel and specifically to reach unreached people. And I'm praying that that's an anointing that will be rich in this house, that God will show you that though we live in America and though we live in Texas, and some may call us the center of the belt buckle of the Bible belt, there are still multiplied thousands of people within the shadow of this church who do not know Jesus in any real way. May God give us the grace and the power and the prayer life to reach them before it's eternally too late. Can I hear a good amen? Uh, I think I mentioned to you last night, I wasn't planning on preaching in Pittsburgh, let alone flying down here to preach here. And so I just was on the plane with my, my jeans and my boots. My birthday's next week. And uh, uh, my son, my son took me out today. And uh, pretty much everything I'm wearing is a gift from Jonathan. He, I've never had a velvet suit jacket in my life. I know. I'm editing remarks as I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. But uh, anyway, I said, do I have to turn in my man card if I wear this? But... Uh, Compared to what my son wears, this is pretty conservative, so. I said, I'm willing to, he's doing much better. I mean, he is, he's one of the sharpest dressed preachers in not just America, but around the world. But, you know, several years ago, I was getting really concerned. He was, he was preaching and stuff. He looked like he had robbed Richard Simmons' yard sale. And uh, I thought for a while there, we were going to have to have a deliverance service. And, get his style back into the blood of Jesus Christ, but thank God he made a U-turn and is now one of the sharpest pastors and evangelists in North America. So he's trying to bring his dad up to speed because to be honest with you, for the last 30 years, I wear gray suit, navy blue suit, and black suit, and that's it. So uh, I showed up with just jeans, and but even the boots on my feet are from Fort Worth, Texas. And I'll give you three guesses as to who bought those for dad. But uh, the shoes I'm wearing are from my son. The shirt I'm wearing is from my son. The suit jacket I'm wearing is from my son. The pocket scarf uh, is from my son. And this is just one of multiple uh, outfits that he bought me today. He just is so incredibly uh, good to his dad. And I am so very, very grateful. Uh, when I started out in ministry, I mentioned to you, Judy and I were homeless the first four years. And when I graduated from Bible college, I, I needed suits to preach. I thought, if I'm going to be an evangelist, I need some suits. Anybody old enough to remember a store by the name of Montgomery Wards? 
I went to Montgomery Wards and they had a sale on suits for $99 for three. Three suits for $99. Anybody old enough to remember Swedish knit? Swedish knit was a material. Some people are laughing. Some of the gentlemen are laughing and, and uh, waving their hands. All I can tell you about Swedish knit, you couldn't get the crease out of the pants if you tried. You couldn't wrinkle that fabric if you tried. I think they quit making suits out of it and started making bulletproof vests for law enforcement. But whatever that fabric was, it was incredible. I could take my pants off at night and stand them in the corner. And they'd literally just wait there for you till the next morning. It was one rugged, stiff fabric. But you can imagine the quality of those suits. Three suits, three piece suits to boot for 99 bucks. And for several years, that was my wardrobe. And I didn't say anything to Jonathan today, but when he was having me try on uh, clothes and, and uh, buying me some nice stuff, I... I thought about uh, that time I walked into Montgomery Wards and, and bought three suits for $99. And uh, this cost a little more than $99. I don't even, when Jonathan takes me to places, I don't even want to see the price tags. It just is frightening. But I want to say a public thank you to, uh, to my son for his kindness and his honor and his generosity. Amen. Let me tell you something. I doubt you'll meet anybody in your lifetime more generous than Jonathan Shuttlesworth. And that's the truth. And you're blessed to have him as your pastor. And I look forward to uh, being a part of what God is doing here in Fort Worth. Lord willing, we'll see you December 2nd. And uh, looking forward to those meetings. When I'm here, always do your best. If you're, if you're new to our ministry, always do your best to bring somebody that needs Christ. Regardless of what I preach on, there will always be a clear invitation for people to receive Christ. And know that I'll always come prepared and prayed up. And uh, my prayer for you in Fort Worth, and part of my prayer every time I come here, is my prayer will be that every single member of your household will get saved and live ready for the soon return of the Lord. Let's get into the word. Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. If you're sitting next to someone that does not have a Bible, if you'd be kind enough to share. If you're sitting next to someone that's a new Christian, you may have to help them find the book of Amos. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of what is called the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We have the major prophets and minor prophets. They're not called major prophets because they're more important. They're not called minor prophets because they're less important. They're simply in the world of theology called major prophets because their books have more content. Minor prophets are brief, short books. Amos is a minor prophet, and so many people have a hard time finding, and I'll give you a few moments and again, if there's somebody that needs some help, by the way, if you're a new Christian, don't ever be embarrassed by what you don't know. I love the unchurched, but I equally love brand new believers and have a passion to, to help you. Uh, I always tell people, I hope I can earn the, the right to 
to be a trusted voice in your life, I hope you'll subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's specifically created to help people learn the Bible. And in recent years, we've just had a miraculous explosion. We have over a million students a month from over a hundred nations of the world, month after month, who study the Bible with us at least once a month and growing. By the way, that message I preached Sunday morning is up to 1.5 million views on YouTube and still skyrocketing and multiple people coming to Christ and coming back to Christ. And that's what it's all about. Amos chapter 9, Tina in my office. You can begin the hard edit for social media right here. Tonight I want to speak to you on a very important subject, especially in light of Bible prophecy, and perhaps more important because of what's going on in our world right now. I want to speak about three things concerning Israel and Bible prophecy that everyone should know. And I'm going to keep my remarks focused upon those three things, but it's a rich subject, and again, we're going to get right into it. I always say I like to start in the Bible, stay in the Bible, and finish in the Bible, which we'll do tonight. And as I've already shared with you, if you're new to our ministry, every time you come to hear us, bring a Bible, bring a way of taking notes, bring a highlighter to run through some of these classic passages and of course, I think you know by now, I have a great passion for eschatology and Bible prophecy and end time events. What an incredible gift the Bible gives us. 27% of the Bible is prophetic content. That's what separates the Bible from every other religion, every other religious book. Many of these religions have what they call their sacred writings, but what separates the Bible from all religions, all other writings, all other sacred texts, is the Bible is 27% prophetic in content, and almost 80% of the prophecies in the Bible have already come to pass with complete and total accuracy, which gives us an intellectual reason to believe that the remaining prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled in the scripture will equally come to pass. If you believe that, can I hear a good Texas amen? amen. Three things about Israel and Bible prophecy you must know, reading out of Amos 9, beginning to read at verse 11, reading down through verse 15, reading tonight out of the New Living Translation. The prophet Amos said, In that day I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities 
and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat their crops and drink their wine and I will firmly plant them there in their own land. Run a highlighter through that. I will firmly plant them there in their own land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them says the Lord your God pause right there this was a prophecy by Amos concerning God's land covenant which we now understand to be the modern nation we call the statehood of Israel which was officially recognized on May 14th, 1948. Amos, long before Israel was a state, prophesied that God would bring them back from being dispersed around the world, restore them to their land, cause restoration and rebuilding. But here's what I want you to grasp. Once they are back in the land, God said they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. How does that apply to those of us who are believers living in the Western world? Well, it gives us the ability to prophesy the outcome of this current war. Days ago, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, declared officially that they are at war with their enemies. And in particular, Hamas and terrorist organizations and the nations that are supporting them. He said, quote, we are at war. People wonder if Israel's going to survive because there's such a small land surrounded by so many enemies. So much greater than they are. Well, I can predict and prophesy by the integrity of the Bible. They're not going to lose this war and nobody's going to drive them out of their land because God himself has sworn to be their defender and he will keep his promise unto his eternal kingdom and all who want to be a part of God's eternal kingdom. Can I hear a good amen? amen. Let me say right up front before we pray, if you're not in a position of knowing where you stand with God, if you're the worst sinner in the state of Texas, if you're watching me on social media anywhere in the world, I give you this advice. If there ever were a time in human history that you needed to make peace with God and live ready every day to meet him, you need to settle that account with God immediately. Because at any moment, the rapture of the church could take place. And you will either be taken or you'll be left behind. And there's one way and only one way that you can secure that contract with God. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. And Acts 4.12 tells us, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you're not sure you're saved tonight, I'm not your enemy. I'm not your judge. I'm your best friend. And I want you to listen patiently because I do in every service the same thing in conclusion. I want to pray with you at the end of this service and give you an opportunity either to receive Christ publicly and personally for the first time in your life 
Or perhaps you're listening and you need to come home to the Lord. You can come home to the Lord tonight. His grace and his arms are still wide open. There is an opportunity for you to do what must be done and no one can do it for you. There's only two things you can do with Jesus Christ. You can receive him or you can reject him. But make no mistake about it, where you spend eternity hinges upon what you do with God's only begotten Son. May God, by the Holy Spirit, as I'm preaching, give you the courage and the faith and humility to get ready to pray at the end of this service. And I'll meet you right here at this altar. And we'll kneel and pray together, and you can go home tonight, maybe for the first time in your life, for the first time in a long time, and lay your head to the pillow tonight with an absolute assurance no matter what happens in this world, I made peace with God. My sins are forgiven. Christ is Lord and Savior. And whenever he comes, I'm ready because of God's extended love and grace. Can I hear a good amen? amen. Father, as we open up the Holy Bible, once again, we lean completely and totally upon your divine guidance. We thank you for the truth of prophecy. We thank you for the clear and distinct topography that you have given to us to navigate perilous times. I pray that you'll give me the ability to make the message of God clear, the message of prophecy transparent. I pray that even every boy and every girl who listens to me will understand the simplicity of what you have promised I thank you that by the power and the integrity of the Bible, every power of sin is broken. Every captive is set free. And all within the sound of my voice are free to come to Christ. Give them the faith and the courage to do that in the moments to come. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I believe that every serious student of the Bible must be aware of the importance of Israel as the centerpiece of all Bible prophecy. And I fear that because of the many unlearned talking heads on social media who speak about prophecy without having an understanding as to what they're talking about, many are being deceived. But it's important to know that God's word gives us clear information. And when it's properly read in context, in the full narrative of the scripture, and carefully exegeted or interpreted, it leaves absolute clarity as the path that our feet must be upon to stay ready for the soon coming of Christ. One Bible scholar wrote these words. I wrote them down, quote, keep your eyes on Zion. When you see the word Zion in the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, just know that is mentioning Jerusalem. Keep your eyes on Zion or Jerusalem, God's holy land. As the Jews go, so goes the world. The Jews are God's yardstick, God's outline, God's blueprint for what he is up to in the rest of the world, end quote. What a brilliant and condensed statement to help us to understand that Bible prophecy, you'll hear me say it over and over and over again, not because I don't have other things to say, but because of its importance 
Bible prophecy is not about the West. Bible prophecy is not about America. Bible prophecy is not about our government. Bible prophecy is not about Democrats and Republicans and elections. Bible prophecy revolves around Israel and Jerusalem. For those that are taking notes, let me just give you some wonderful facts about Israel. Israel is the only country in the world that has the same name, is located in the same land, and speaks the same language that it did 3,000 years ago. Not one single nation can say that except Israel. Israel has the lowest geographical point on earth. The Dead Sea is about 1,300 feet below sea level and lies at the southern end of the Jordan Valley and its seawater is 8.6 times saltier than either the Atlantic or the Pacific. As a matter of fact, the minerals that are in the Dead Sea are worth untold amounts of money, which is why one of the reasons why many of Israel's enemies want that land. The Dead Sea in and of itself is full of untold wealth. The Mount of Olives in Israel is the oldest continually used cemetery in the world. Did you know that the very first computer was designed by a Jew in Israel for a company called IBM? The very first cell phone was invented by a Jew in Israel. Voicemail technology was invented by a Jew in Israel. USB memory sticks were invented by a Jew in Israel. Waze, which has been bought out recently as one of the most advanced GPS navigation apps for smartphones, was invented by a Jew in Israel. The Iron Dome was invented in Israel, which is that mobile air defense system that's impenetrable, that stops short and long-range missiles, and is considered to be one of the most advanced military technologies ever invented. In the war that took place just days ago, on that early morning at 8.15, they were bombarded by over five thousand rockets and missiles. Israel has also invented a list of military and weapon technology that would take hours to read. The same could be said of medicines and medical technology. Almost every American has heard of Bear Aspirin and Bear Medical, which Mr. Bear was Jewish. Most major high-tech companies, including Google, Apple, Intel, Microsoft, all have significant presence in Israel. But with that said, I'm not here to give you a history of Israel and its technology and its creativity and its entrepreneurial miraculous ability. I want to focus upon the three things biblically and prophetically that every serious student of the Bible must know about Israel Number one, if you're taking notes, Israel is the most important land in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, and in the world. I see many of you have come tonight and are writing things down. 
which makes me happy. By the way, as I said last night, years ago, you had to say something four times before the average American retained it. But because of the wash of technology and video and being assaulted in our eye gate and in our ear gate, you now have to say something 11 times for the average American to retain it. You know how you whip that beast? Pen and pencil or a digital tablet. Whatever you write down has a 100% retention rate. You'll hear me say it repeatedly as we preach and teach. Bible prophecy is complicated because there are varying views on some of the chronology and some of the positions. It requires a more diligent scholarship as a Christian if you're going to at least understand the fundamentals. So I always encourage people to do what I've done for 40 years. Write it down. Now, I don't get to go to my home church very often. But do you know that every time I go to church, and by the way, I go to church every Sunday when I'm home. I don't care if I've been on the road and have had 20 services in 10 days and have flown 20,000 miles and have had little sleep. When I'm home on Sunday morning, I get up put on a suit, shine my shoes, take my Bible, and go to church with my wife every single Sunday. I don't do that to impress God. I do that because there's a blessing in being in the house of God that nothing in the world can substitute for. Amen. But do you know what I do when I go to church? I do what I ask you to do. I take my Bible I have a Bible case, and in my Bible case, I have a notebook. I'm still a little old school. I like to write some stuff down. I have a tablet, have one with me tonight. It's incredible that with modern technology, I can sit in any hotel where I'm at in the world, and as long as they have Wi-Fi, I can access the libraries of the world for study and research. My almost 50 years of ministry and study and scholarship and notes are all on what they call the cloud. And I can access it with a very simple device and even what many people call a smartphone. What a day and age in which we live, but to whom much is given, what does the Bible say? Much shall also be required. There is no excuse for lazy biblical scholarship in the 21st century. And so I take a notebook and a pen and my Bible and a highlighter every time I go to church. And when the Lord speaks through the Bible or reveals something that I may not know, I take careful and copious notes. The more you show God, don't miss this, the more you show God your interest in his word, the more you set yourself up for divine promotion. Because everything God promotes is connected to his eternal covenant. Thank you for all those amens. That's why we take the offering first. <laughs> the more you show God your interest in his word, learning it, living it, and loving it, the more you advance and accelerate your promotion in the kingdom of God because God builds everything upon the foundations of his eternal word. 
Let me give you something for free that will bless you. Did you know that the Bible said that there's a special blessing supernaturally reserved for people who study Bible prophecy? Revelation tells me that there's a blessing given to those who study Bible prophecy that's not found incentivized in any other place or in any other doctrine in the Bible. The Bible said, I'll bless those who read this prophecy to the church and those who listen to it and obey it. In Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation begins and it's the only book that is incentivized with a supernatural blessing from God. Just by being here tonight and making a decision to get into the house of God to read and to study and to meditate and to teach and to preach Bible prophecy, you have set yourself up for a supernatural blessing from God. Blessed are all those who read the words of this prophecy to the church. That's me. And I genuinely believe the reason why our ministry, Lost Lamb Association, has had 44 years of continual growth and supernatural favor, I believe in my heart of hearts that a lot of that is not just because we've remained focused on reaching unreached people around the world. I also believe it's connected to five decades of preaching on Bible prophecy. It was a message on prophecy days ago that has 1.5 million views. The world needs to know that what's going on in the world is not a surprise to God and it shouldn't be a surprise to you. Revelation 1.3 Blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy to the church and all who listen to them and obey them for the time is near. So there's a blessing in preaching and teaching prophecy. And there is a blessing in receiving and learning prophecy. And when you begin to hear it and you show God, I'm going to learn the things of prophecy, not just for an intellectual ascent to Bible knowledge, but so I might better communicate my faith and substantiate my beliefs and prove that the God of the Bible is not a fantasy, but his words are true and everything he said will come to pass. To become a better witness. You'll receive a special blessing. Father, in the name of Jesus, I prophesy over the infancy of this church. Because my son has opened its doors wide to the regular preaching of Bible prophecy. That this church will have a supernatural blessing in the city of Dallas and Fort Worth and surrounding communities. That will cause it to exceedingly abundantly move in the will and the work of God under the coming of Christ. And may it be so for every member in Jesus name and all who believe it and receive it shout a good amen. Number one, Israel is the most important land in Bible prophecy and in the world. Israel is the geographic center of the world, strategically located at the hub of three continents. 
Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 5, the Bible said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is an illustration of what will happen to Jerusalem. I placed her at the center of the nations. The other thing I think a lot of people in the West don't understand is to how small the nation of Israel is. And I've been there several times. But it is a, an incredibly small piece of real estate. Only 8,630 square miles. By comparison, smaller than New Jersey. Only three United States are smaller than the nation of Israel. Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Delaware. The nation of Israel could fit inside the United States 463 times. The nation of Israel could fit into Canada 478 times. The nation of Israel could fit into Russia 765 times. It could fit into China 429 times. It could fit into Alaska where I just spent two weeks in outreach 77 times. And it could fit into the great state of Texas 33 times. God has made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he gave them a covenant with this land that we now call Israel. If you have your Bibles, go into the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15. And let's see where God made that promise. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. That's the promise of God, eternal and irrevocable. And in this passage, God made a covenant or an irrevocable contract with Abraham and he repeats this covenant. It's eternal and unconditional throughout the Bible. All of the comments that I hear in our prophecy preaching and even recently preaching on Israel, the viral video at 1.5 million views and growing, it's interesting to read the thousands of comments and how many people, Christians, don't believe in Israel. The church is the real Israel. The Jews forsook God. They crucified Christ. God rejected them. These are all individuals who don't know their Bibles or haven't read their Bibles or sit under ministries whose IQs are lower than the room temperature because the Bible repeatedly, repeatedly throughout scripture, it tells us that God's covenant with the Jews and Israel is eternal and irrevocable and unconditional. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God tells Abraham, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall name him Isaac and I will maintain my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring to come. God also in the Bible makes clear that the land of Israel would not be given to the descendant of Abraham's son Ishmael, but specifically the covenant is with Isaac. That's important for you to understand because 
the war that's going on right now in the Middle East. As horrific as it is, it all goes back to this. Because the angel of the Lord prophesied and said that the blessing was upon Isaac and not Ishmael. And the angel of the Lord in the scriptures said, these two will always be at war one with the other. And what happened days ago is the descendants of Ishmael once again attacking the descendants of Isaac. This all goes back to a fundamental understanding of the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and continuously through the Bible, God repeats himself. It's unconditional and it's irrevocable. Even Paul in Romans chapter 11 said, do you think God has rejected Israel? Never. Genesis chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, God promised to bless Ishmael, the ancestor of the Muslims, and use him to create a great nation. But he said his covenant is with Abraham and included a specific promise of land that would be accomplished through Isaac, not Ishmael, removing any ambiguity. One scholar wrote these words, listen to them, powerfully written, quote, massive amounts of archaeological evidence support the notion that Israel has been in its land for as long as the Bible recounts and that the words of scripture are historically proven to be true, end quote. We know that the Jews have had a presence in the land of Israel until the Romans conquered it. However, the Jews were ultimately driven from their land in two dispersions in A.D. 70 and then again in A.D. 135. Did you know there are over a thousand verses in the Hebrew Bible connecting the Jewish people with the land of Israel? I repeat, a thousand verses. The land of Israel, according to Bible prophecy, is the most important location on earth. Let me give you one summation sentence that I hope you'll never forget. When it comes to the first thing you must remember about Israel, it is the centerpiece of Bible prophecy. It is the most important land in the Bible in Bible prophecy, and in final prophecy. Number two, Jerusalem is the most important city in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, and in the world. Number one, Israel is the most important nation in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, and the world. Number two, Jerusalem is the most important city in Bible prophecy, and the world. Unlike many of the quote-unquote prophets on social media, the most important city in the world is not Washington, D.C. That's one thing COVID did when it comes to favors from God given to the church. All of the biblical idiots were revealed by the words of their mouth prophesying about American politics. Thank you for all those amens. If I haven't offended you yet, be patient, I'll get to you. And it disgusts me 
as a student of the Bible to watch people take the Bible and twist it and pervert it and try to make it say what it does not say to match their personal biases about politics in Washington, D.C. That's how you'll know you're listening to someone that does not deserve a single moment of your ear. May God give you the grace to scroll by and delete. Come on, somebody shout amen. Most important city in the world is not Washington, D.C. It's not London. It's not Paris. It's not Rome. It's not Beijing. It's not Moscow. It's Jerusalem, according to the Bible. God declared that Jerusalem would be the capital of Israel 3,000 years ago and said it would be the capital forever. Psalm 132, mark it down. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever, he said. I will live here for this is the home I have desired. Historically, Jerusalem became the capital of Israel by the decree of King David 3,000 years ago based on his understanding that it was God's choice, not his choice. And it has remained Israel's capital ever since. And if you know your history, multiple nations and multiple kingdoms have overthrown that land, conquered that land, settled in that land called Israel. But did you know that of all of the nations who have lived and conquered in that sacred covenant land, not one of them ever called Jerusalem the capital. Why? Because they couldn't. God already made it his capital. And their mouths were zipped. And they could never say anything, even if they intended to. Not one single conquering nation that inhabited the land throughout its history ever made Jerusalem its capital. Over the past 2,000 years, even during the times of occupation and persecution, a Jewish community resided there and maintained it, calling it their eternal capital. The Bible mentions Jerusalem more than any other place in the scriptures. Did you know that? Do you know how many times the Bible mentions Jerusalem? 800 times. The Bible prophesied that Jerusalem will be the capital city, not only of Israel. Don't miss this. Everybody that's still with me say a big amen. amen. The Bible prophesied that Jerusalem would be the capital city, not only of Israel, but did you know it prophesied it would be the entire world's capital after the second coming of Christ? A lot of Bible students have never been taught that. I want to say it again. Israel is not only the capital promised by God 3,000 years ago for the nation of Israel, but the Bible prophesied that after the second coming of Jesus, Jerusalem would be the capital of the entire world. I've preached that for 40 years and invariably now with social media, I get hundreds and thousands of comments and emails and questions. And so to save myself and my office a ton of work, let me show you in the Bible where that's at, because that's what's always asked. Where in the Bible did it say that Jerusalem's going to be the capital of the world? 
Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it and get your highlighter out and highlight this incredibly important prophetic passage. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is a vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, Jerusalem, will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his path. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. And not only will Jerusalem be the capital of Israel and the capital of the entire world after the second coming, Jesus himself, God's only begotten son, no longer the pierced Messiah, but the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords will establish his throne and reign from Jerusalem. Where does the Bible tell us that? Luke chapter 1 verse 32. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Indisputable. No theological wiggle room in that. Jesus will set up his throne and will rule the world from the world's capital. Jerusalem. Lastly, and I close with this number three. Number one, Israel is the most important land in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, and the world. Number two, Jerusalem is the most important city in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, and the world. And I've given you Bible for all of it. I've given you multiple passages for all of it. But thirdly, and most importantly, as a matter of fact, the third thing that I close with tonight is oftentimes in the world of eschatology called the super sign of all Bible prophecy. And what is that third thing I close with? The regathering of the Jewish people to Israel is the most important prophecy in the Bible. Seems like I see the majority writing it down. Let me give it to you again. The regathering of the Jewish people to Israel is the most important prophecy in the Bible. Again, in theological circles and especially in eschatology, we call it the super sign. 
Write that down. The super sign of all Bible prophecy, the regathering of the Jewish people is the most prophesied event at the end of time passages in the Bible. And it's found in multiple places. The Lord tarries and I have opportunity, perhaps we'll return to this, but time does not allow. It's found in multiple places. It's found in Jeremiah 30 verses 1 through 5. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 11 through 24. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's found in Zechariah chapter 10 verses 6 through 10 and many, many other passages. If you're listening to this on social media, take advantage of the pause button and the rewind button and go back and do your own reading on that. But let me read one in particular for you. Jeremiah chapter 30, if you have your Bible. And again, I ask you to open your Bible and highlight this. This is one of the classic passages on this subject in Bible prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 3, Jeremiah oftentimes called the weeping prophet, one of the major prophets, said in Jeremiah 30 and verse 3, for the time is coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people of Israel and Judah, I will bring them home to this land that I gave to their ancestors and they will possess it again, I the Lord have spoken. The super sign of all Bible prophecy. That is a statement that I'm not speaking casually. That carries weight. The Bible 27% prophecy. One prophecy called the super sign. Is God's promise to restore. Not only the nation of Israel. But to supernaturally begin to regather the Jews. That had been dispersed throughout the world. In A.D. 70, again in A.D. 135, you've seen that happen in your lifetime. You're seeing it happen as I speak. But two momentous things must happen before the end time prophecies can be completely fulfilled. What are those two things? Number one, first Israel must be a nation. Well, that happened on May 14th, 1948. Israel was reborn as a nation. By the way, do you know when Jerusalem was officially recognized internationally as capital? That's recent history by our former president. Do you know the date? May 14th, 2018, 70 years to the day after Israel became a nation. Jerusalem was internationally recognized as its capital. 70 years by accident? I think not. Secondly, the Jewish people must return to Israel. Again, let me back up in case you missed it because it's solid gold and I want you to have it. Two things have to happen with Israel and the Jewish people before the final chronology of end time prophecies can hit their track. Israel must be reborn as a nation, fulfilled May 14th, 1948. Number two, the Jewish people must return to Israel. Bible prophecy clearly tells us that the regathering of the Jewish people is actually going to take place in two stages. 
In Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 14, we read the vision oftentimes called the valley of dry bones. That vision in Ezekiel 37 prior to the Gog and Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 shows us that Israel's restoration is going to take place in several stages. Some trace the beginning of this return to 1871 when a few Jewish people openly shared they felt directed by the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to begin a return to the land. There must be some weight to that because by 1881, there were approximately 25,000 Jewish people that had settled there. By 1914, over 80,000 Jews had gathered there. By 1939, there were almost 450,000 Jews from around the world that gathered there. After World War II, the atrocities of Hitler's Holocaust brought international attention to the plight of the Jewish people. And of course, on May 14th, 1948, the Israeli Declaration of Independence was made in Tel Aviv a few hours before the British mandate was due to expire. At midnight, the British mandate of Palestine is officially terminated and the state of Israel came into being and it's being fought over as I speak viciously still. But did you know that on May 15th, the United States was the very first nation to grant de facto recognition to the state of Israel 11 minutes after it comes into existence becoming the first country to recognize the Jewish state. Let me just pause here long enough to say, if you study Israeli history, Jewish history, and American history, America's trajectory has always followed its political trajectory with Israel. When the United States has been strong in its support of Israel, our nation and our economy have always flourished. But when politicians with lip service claim to be the ally of Israel, but never visit it, never respond to the true needs, leave $94 billion of our finest military technology in Afghanistan, for Israel's enemies to gather up, divide among themselves. And by the way, there's intel and pictures out that in the invasion that took place days ago, many of the same weapons that were left in Afghanistan were being used by the terrorists to kill innocent lives in Israeli people and take hostages. One thing to say you're Israel's ally with political mouth. It's another thing to back it by your actions and by your blood, sweat, and tears. And there has never been a greater spirit of anti-Semitism in American politics than we have right now. We have senators who call for the extermination of Jews and back the terrorists Openly, aggressively, elected American officials who publicly spew their venom and hatred for Jews, for Israel, for Jerusalem, 
who vocally and gleefully talk about their support of terrorism. At the time of their statehood, there was a population of 650,000 Jewish people. By 2009, there were 5.4 million Jews in Israel and 5.2 million Jews in America. Very important date. Write that down or remember it. By 2009... 5.4 million Jews in Israel, 5.2 million Jews in America. Why is 2009 so important? Because now the fulfillment of that prophecy is completed. 2009, from the dispersion of AD 70 and AD 135, 2009 becomes the first time in history That you could say publicly and factually there are more Jews in Israel than any place in the world. By the way, America has the second largest population of Jews. The population of Israel is currently around 9.5 million people. This includes a little over 7 million Jews who are 74% of the population, 2 million Arabs, which are 21% of the population, and 478,000 members of other groups, about 5% of the population. The number of Jews that have immigrated to Israel in the past year represents the largest number of immigrants to Israel in the last 20 years. Why am I giving you all of this data? Why am I giving you all of these dates? Why am I giving you all of these facts? Because I want you to know that what the Bible prophesies can be supported by data, can be supported by facts, can be supported by research. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will never pass away. And the super sign of Bible prophecy, the regathering of Jews to Israel is the most easy and provable prophecy to show Bible critics of all. About half of the new immigrants this past year came from Ukraine and Russia, directly connected to the invasion by Russia and Vladimir Putin. What he is doing in his attempt perhaps to be the aggressive leader out of Ezekiel's prophecy is fulfilling Bible prophecy by causing the persecution to cause the Jews again to flee and to go where? To their homeland. The number of Jews in Israel is expected to reach over 13 million in the next 10 years on that trajectory. Now there are approximately 7 million Jews in Israel. This makes Israel the only Jewish majority and explicitly Jewish state. Jewish population figures for the United States are contested, ranging between 5.7 and 6.8 million people. But that small number of Jewish people in 1871, that holy handful in 1871, who said they felt the direct compulsion of the Father 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling them back, started a trajectory that has increased with every passing year until the fulfillment where there are now more Jews in Israel than any place else in the world. Interesting to note, Israel and the United States amount for 83% of all of the Jews in the world. The rest of the 98 countries that have Jews are less than 17%. So as I speak tonight, the fulfillment of this is so blatantly visible. Israel now is the majority of Jews in the world. America's Jewish population is second. The rest of the other nations in the world, less than 17%. The prophecies of the restoration of the land and the regathering of the Jews has been fulfilled. Let's take two steps back. If you were taking notes, I said two things in Bible prophecy must happen before the remaining chronology of the final events can be fulfilled. Number one, Israel must become a nation fulfilled May 14th, 1948. And the restoration of the Jews to that land must be fulfilled Hear me carefully as I say this. It has been fulfilled in your lifetime in the last handful of years. To those who know end time Bible prophecy, this historic regathering of the Jewish people, what did I call it? The super sign Of all Bible prophecy, this regathering of the Jewish people to the ancient homeland is the super sign. But what does the super sign point to? It points to the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I close with this question. Are you living ready for the soon return of the Lord? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44 tells us, Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. In such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So all of these prophets on social media who are telling you the Lord spoke to them and told them when he's coming back, know that they're liars. Know that they don't know their Bibles. Know that they're deceivers. Know that their father is not God. Know that they are the children of the devil. For the great power of the devil in Bible prophecy is deception. When you study Bible prophecy, and it's one of the things that I look forward to building a relationship with you from the infancy of this church. I look forward to building a relationship with you in this book. And in particular, helping us to understand in this house, in this vision, the importance of navigating perilous times, not in fear but in faith with an aggressive passion to reach the lost. Why? Because night cometh when no man can work. Bible prophecy should motivate us to win the lost. I was talking to a businessman here in Texas today that I just met. 
He was talking about how the pandemic has changed the business format of not only America and Texas, but around the world. The landscape of being entrepreneurial is not the same. It's hard to find workers. Production's different, et cetera, et cetera. He was talking about, I've seriously considered retiring. I said, I understand that. I said, but I'll never retire. You retire from a secular job. And I pray that if the Lord tarries, that you have the opportunity to retire from your secular job and to be well prepared and blessed and enjoy life. I hope you get to sit in your favorite rocking chair and your favorite view. I hope you get to spend time with family and your children and your grandchildren. I hope you're blessed in retirement. I really do. But you can never retire from a sacred calling. And my hero, Dr. Billy Graham, never retired. Well into his late 90s, preached his final message in a rocking chair on his porch in the mountains of North Carolina. And his organization had set that time up. Do you know how many people conservatively heard Billy Graham from his rocking chair at almost 98 years of age? Over one billion people heard his last message. You will never hear that Tiff Shuttlesworth has retired. I don't know what in the world's wrong with me. I'm working two full-time ministries at the current moment. But thank God for his grace to do what we're called to do. But I want to pass that passion on. I want that urgency to reach the lost to ever be the DNA of this church. We're not just meeting for religiosity. We're not just meeting to have a bless me club and to feel good about ourselves. We have a divine responsibility to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and to reach lost men and women and boys and girls while there is time. The gospel of John says each of us must carry out the tasks that are assigned to us for night cometh when no man can work. Night cometh when no man can work. And the super sign of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. In the last handful of years, you and I have lived long enough to see the fulfillment of words prophesied by prophets of old so many hundreds and thousands of years ago. And the next major event on the prophetic calendar of God is the rapture of the church like a thief in the night. May you live ready to meet the Lord. If you believe and receive the word of the Lord tonight, give God a mighty hand of praise. The musicians are going to lead us in a song of invitation in just a moment. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? And as much as is possible, will you hold steady? What we're about to do is the most important thing we do. 
As I mentioned in the very infancy of this message, I never preach without giving people an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. It's important. I don't know how to put it any more front and center than I can put it, but by telling you, the single most important decision in your life is the decision to recognize your sin, to repent of your sin, and to receive Jesus Christ. Those of you that are present, those of you that are watching on social media platforms around the world, you're not listening now by accident. Perhaps God in providential working in your life has you listening right now. But tonight you can make a decision and secure peace with God. You say, but Tiff, I've, I've sinned. I can't even remember how many times I've sinned and the things I've done. I've disappointed God. I, I don't know that God could ever forgive me. I've had people come to me through the years and said exactly that. Tiff, if you knew my past, if you knew the things that I have done, you'd know that there's no way possible that God could ever save me or forgive me. Well, that's the devil whispering in your ear. Because everything about God is contracted in the covenant of the Bible. And here's what God said. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen very clearly to what I'm about to say. In your life, hell has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. Hell has forged no chains that heaven cannot break. And no matter what the potency of your past, one single drop of blood from Jesus Christ, the sinless lamb, washes every sin and every stain away. And all of the things that you've done that quietly haunt you in your memory banks, and sometimes when you lay your head to the pillow at night and the lights are out, and the volume of the world has been turned down and you lay there in the quiet of night and your past haunts you. Things you've done that nobody in your family even knows about and it haunts you. Will God ever forgive me? What have I done? Would God ever forgive me? Would God ever cleanse me? Do you know how many war-weary soldiers in 44 years of ministry I've met at altars who have said with tears dropping off their chins and beards, Tiff, if you only knew the hell that I've participated in in war, the things I had to do, you would know that God could never forgive me. It's not true. There is no sin in your life greater than the grace of God. God said all who call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. There is no sin in your life greater than the cross. There is no sin in your past greater than Jesus who died, shed his blood, rose again, promised to return. You just have to come to God by faith and take him at the integrity of the Bible. And that's exactly what we're going to do. I'm going to meet you here at this altar in just a moment. They're going to sing a song of invitation. And as soon as they sing that first note, I always ask those that have the courage, you be the very first ones to come when that invitation is given. And it's just human nature. The simple fact is, I've learned in 44 years in over 60 countries of the world that some people just have that strength on a different level than others. And it has nothing to do with bravado. I've seen little girls come to an altar when big bikers stood paralyzed in their seats. I've seen little boys recently, nine years old in Alaska, he and his brother, 12 years old. On the first night, I was there early tuning my guitar. They came up and were sitting on the steps of the stage watching everything that I was doing. Doing a sound check. And I walked over to them after I tuned my guitar and finished. Introduced myself and shook their hands. And I asked them, is this your home church? And they said, no. I said, where do you regularly go to church? They said, we've never been to church. So what do you mean you've never been to church? This is our first time. Oh, how'd you come? Mom brought us. Where does she go to church? She doesn't go to church anywhere either. Why did she come? Somebody invited her. And I remember those boys in Alaska and I'll never forget them. Because that night when I gave the invitation, maybe spending just a little bit of time being real helped break some ice. But the first person to the altar that night in that lost lamb crusade was the nine-year-old. And as the nine-year-old came half running, and when he knelt down as I was kneeling on the platform, he knelt so close to me, his nose almost touched my nose, staring in my eyes fearless, ready to make his commitment to Christ. And about two and a half, three steps behind him was his 12-year-old brother. And several steps behind the 12-year-old was the mother. And that night, along with several other people, they gave their hearts to Christ. Throughout the remaining week of that lost lamb crusade, they brought in other family members, a sister, Going into the last night of the meeting, which ended on Friday, the nine-year-old came to me on Thursday night after and said, will you please pray for my daddy? I've been asking him to come, and he hasn't come yet, and tomorrow's the last night. Will you pray? And so I took hands with the 12-year-old and the nine-year-old, and we prayed for their daddy. And the next night as I was singing, I couldn't help but see, but on the front row, was the whole family, and at the end, I assumed, was the dad. And that night when I gave the invitation, as I do tonight, as I do every night, I always say something like this. If you're a Christian, and there's somebody sitting next to you,
and you're not sure if they've ever made their own personal and public commitment to Christ, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a stranger, but if you're not sure if they've ever made their own personal and public commitment to Christ, as people are gathering, turn to them kindly and say, I'll walk with you. And I watched the nine-year-old who was sitting on the end go to the end of the row and take his father by the hand. I couldn't see his mouth move, but I could only assume that the nine-year-old said, Daddy, if you need somebody to walk with you, I'll walk with you. But that night, Daddy came to Christ. And that week, that entire family gave their hearts to Christ. Do you know what the Bible said? It said this blessing will be upon you and upon your descendants. And you coming to Christ tonight or you coming back to Christ tonight, you could be the person in your family that starts a chain reaction in bringing the rest of your family to Christ. Isn't it time somebody in your family broke the curse of sin? Isn't it time somebody in your family broke the curse of drugs and addiction and alcohol? Isn't it time somebody in your family broke the curse of sickness and disease? Isn't it time somebody in your family broke the chains of sin and Satan? and Began to blaze a trail to the glory of God. It changed the Shuttlesworth family. As my dad made his way in an old-fashioned Methodist tent meeting sponsored by two women. Can you imagine back in that era, the boldness of two female Methodist pastors holding a tent meeting in a coal mining town in West Virginia? My dad wasn't there for religious reasons, he openly said. There was a girl in the town, he figured the only way he had ever better was if he showed interest in her religion. He was there for carnal reasons, not for spiritual reasons. But the preaching of the gospel changed his heart. He made it to that altar. And that night my dad got saved and broke the curse of sin for the Shuttlesworth family and changed the trajectory of our family for generations. From the night my father got saved until now, there are over 500 years of collective Pentecostal ministry in our family. And I certainly don't say that to boast or pat our family on the back. I say that to give glory to God. What God did for our family, God will do for your family. But somebody has to have the faith Somebody has to have the courage. Somebody has to have the humility to make their way to an old-fashioned altar and say, God, I know I've sinned. Tonight in childlike faith, I repent and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, knowing that you promised the blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse me and purify, make me holy in your eyes. That's what we're going to do. Hear me, don't miss it. By coming to this altar, you're not telling me, you're telling God. This isn't about being Protestant. This isn't about being Catholic. This isn't about being Baptist or Presbyterian or Church of God or Charismatic, etc. Coming to this altar 
You're saying, God, I want to be a real Christian and I want to live ready for your soon return. We're living in the final moments of human history and you need to live ready to meet the Lord. By coming to this altar, you're saying, God, I'm serious. I want to be a real Christian. And whether you're saying it for the first time or you're making a recommitment and coming home, I'm going to kneel here and pray as they lead you in this song of invitation. Again, I want those that have the courage, you be the very first ones to come. Christian, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, not forcefully, but in a gentle Christ-like spirit. Perhaps you need to turn to someone with you sitting nearby and say, I'll walk with you. If you want to pray, I'll walk with you. And I'm going to kneel here and pray that God will give you the courage to do what you ought to do. And then we'll pray as they lead us. Sing it one more time. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus I, I surrender all. Lord Jesus, I, I surrender all. All to Thee, my. We're going to pray, and those of you that are watching online, wherever you may be, the same prayer we pray here, you pray wherever you might be. And when you're done, I want you to go to Revival today, go to their website, and let them know that tonight you prayed, made peace with God, and follow up on that. How old is this precious little girl? Six years old. What's her name? Hi, Charlotte. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Do you know how old I was when I gave my heart to Jesus? I was six too, just like you. What's this young man's name? Max. How old are you, Max? Seven. You're one year older than I was when I gave my heart to Jesus. I love to see children come to Christ. It's one of my greatest joys as an evangelist. As a matter of fact, 
when I don't see children responding in lost lamb crusades, I take that as a sign that I need to make my presentation more clear, more basic, more simple. Billy Graham used to say, if you take the gospel and you make it profound, the results will be simple. But if you take the gospel and you keep it simple, the results will be profound. I believe that. We're going to pray together, those of you that are watching online, out loud and without shame. You're talking to God and the Bible says he hears every word. All who call upon my name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, tonight as I was listening to the Bible, you were speaking to me. Down deep in my heart, I want to be a real Christian. I recognize my sin and in childlike faith I now repent. I turn my back on sin and I turn my heart to Jesus. Come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. Tonight I receive salvation as the gift of God and by your promise tonight I'm saved tonight I'm pure tonight I'm forgiven tonight I'm healed and tonight I'm blessed and I'll never be the same I am no longer the property of sin I am tonight a child of God, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Give the Lord a mighty hand of praise. Thank you for sharing the Jonathan Shuttlesworth podcast. If you're interested in supporting our mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to our generation, please visit revivaltoday.com and click on Give Now to become one of our monthly partners. Thank you in advance. We hope to see you soon.